0: It's Nim, and this is a Spoonful of Medicine, topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. On this episode, we're taking a look at Neonatal Respiratory Distest Syndrome, or what is previously known as Hyaline Membrane Disease. It's a condition that is not all that uncommonly seen in the neonatal unit. It's also a condition that pathophysiology is closely linked to the physiology of the normal lung development. So. Without further ado, let's take a look at respiratory distress syndrome. Let's start with the case on the neonatal ward. you called by the midwives to attend the delivery of a baby boy whose mother is currently actively in labour. It is her first pregnancy and she was admitted at hospital at 32 weeks gestation because she had spontaneous rupture of membranes. 48 hours later and two doses of IV steroids later she's in spontaneous labor and a baby boy is delivered when you arrive. He weighs 800 grams. At delivery he's making spontaneous respiratory effort with marked subcostal and substernal recession. You also note that he's grunting away and he's got a lot of nasal flaring. The midwife as you attend the birth also says that his mum gestational diabetes. You give him some CPAP and he is stabilized and transported to the neonatal unit. This baby likely has respiratory distress syndrome so let's take a look at what causes it, how it presents and also how do we manage it. Okay so respiratory distress syndrome or RDS as we'll refer to it from now on is one of the most common causes of respiratory failure in a neonate. Its incidence increases as gestational age decreases. For babies born before 28 weeks, it can be as high as 60 to 80%. This reduces to below 5% in those born after 37 weeks. The reason why the incidence of RDS changes depending on gestational age becomes apparent when we look at normal lung development as well as the pathophysiology of RDS. During normal lung development, Transition to viable lung occurs in the canalicular stage of fetal development, and that's about week 16 to week 25 of gestation. Here, respiratory bronchioles and alveolar ducts begin to develop, and the surrounding mesenchyme becomes more vascular. By 24 weeks, primitive forms of alveoli become present. At that 24-week mark begins the saccular stage, where potential viability is present for gas exchange. In terms of pulmonary surfactant production, we can see that after 20 weeks, lamellar bodies develop. And this heralds surfactant production. Although in this early stage, the protein component compared to the lipid component is less. In fact, surfactant is not produced in sufficient amounts until about 32 to 34 weeks to stational age. Here, a more mature form of surfactant with more phosphatidylglycerol content has more surface activity and thus mature levels of pulmonary surfactant are present only really after 35 weeks gestation. So why am I talking about surfactant so much? Well it's really important in the pathophysiology of RDS so let's take a look at what it is. Surfactant is released by type 2 pneumocytes and it's made up of 90% lipid and 10% proteins. In fact, it's made up of about 65% lecithin as well as phosphatidylglycerol and then apoproteins, B, C and D as well as cholesterol. Surfactant is super important at reducing alveolar surface tension. Reducing surface tension reduces the pressures needed to open up small collapsed alveoli. Remember Laplace's law. So, surfactant makes it easier to maintain recruited airways as well as open up smaller airways. This increases the functional residual capacity as well as compliance of the lung. It also increases the volume of the lung, and then this ultimately can increase pulmonary blood flow and ventilation. This allows the baby to take its first meaningful breaths. As gestational age increases, more surfactant is made and stored in type 2 alveolar cells. And so that makes sense. The older the baby is in terms of gestational age, the less risk they are at for RDS. Endogenous surfactant production usually becomes sufficient by about 48 to 72 hours of age in preterm infants. So back to RDS. In RDS, there's less surfactant in quality as well as quantity, and this leads to increased surface tension. Increased surface tension means more pressures are needed to keep alveoli open, especially small alveoli. Small airways in the alveoli then collapse because of the lack of surfactant, especially at end expiration. This leads to atelectasis and a poorly compliant lung. This also leads to reduced functional residual capacity as well as lower lung volumes. Ultimately, you have a lung that is poorly compliant poorly aerated, and doesn't have a good ventilation-perfusion ratio. This leads to hypoxia, hypercapnia, and an increased work of breathing. The ventilation-perfusion mismatch can lead to pulmonary hypertension, as well as shunting, both intrapulmonary shunting due to the ventilation-perfusion mismatch, as well as extrapulmonary shunting across a patent foramen ovale or a patent ductus arteriosus. These right to left shunts lead to hypoxemia and cyanosis. There is also a degree of lung inflammation and respiratory epithelial injury. This leads to cytokine mediated immune response, which causes more pulmonary edema, which is also contributed to by decreased pulmonary fluid reabsorption and increased fluid retention in the newborn. On top of this, surfactant is also inactivated due to this inflammatory process. So there's less effective surfactant pool to actually work to open up and help the airways. So we can really see how a reduction in surfactant really leads to a cascade of events that result in poor respiratory function in the neonate. Now let's go back clinically and look at the risk factors as well as protective factors for RDS. The biggest risk factor for RDS is prematurity. The more premature a baby is, the higher the risk for RDS. Other risk factors for RDS include maternal diabetes, a male infant's elective cesarean section being the second born of a twin, perinatal hypoxia or ischemia, as well as a family history of RDS. Now, if we look at the protective factors for RDS, the two main ones are being born at term, as well as antenatal steroid administration. Now park that in the back of your mind because we'll talk more about steroids in a second. Other protective factors include being a female infant, preeclampsia or chronic hypertension, pre-prom, subacute placental abruption, as well as maternal opioids, cocaine and alcohol or smoking. Although for obvious reasons, these are not recommended. Let's take a look at antenatal steroids. Antenatal steroids enhance fetal lung development and maturation, and they also induce an enzyme that stimulates phospholipid synthesis and surfactant production. Some studies showed that RDS can be decreased by up to 40% in babies under 35 weeks with antenatal steroid administration. The maximum effect of antenatal steroids is after two doses, given 12 hours apart and at least 24 hours to 7 days before birth, although the best effects are seen before 48 hours of birth. It's also helpful to know that antenatal steroids decrease the risk of moderate to severe RDS, early-onset sepsis, necrotizing enterocolitis, intraventricular hemorrhage, TTN or transient tachypnea of the newborn, as well as neonatal death. Remember our baby from earlier? Let's see how his presentation compares to the classic presentation of RDS. Babies present within the first minutes to hours of life. They show tachypnea as well as an increased work of breathing. And this increased work can be in the form of grunting where breathing against a closed glottis allows to increase the end expiratory pressure to prevent alveolar collapse. They also have subcostal and intercostal recession And this is due to generation of large amounts of negative intrathoracic pressure to expand a poorly compliant lung, in addition to a very compliant chest wall. Babies can also be pale or cyanose, and the cyanosis is due to -to right-to-left intra- or extra-pulmonary shunting. Breath sounds will be diminished, and there will be a presence of coarse ronchi in bilateral lung fields. The baby may also have low oxygen saturations due to poorly ventilated lungs as well as intra and extra pulmonary shunting. Initially urine output will be low and these babies may also have low serum sodium due to free water retention. A blood gas will show hypoxemia as well as a respiratory acidosis and or an element of lactic acidosis due to poor ventilation and lactic acidosis from hypoxemia of the tissues. The symptoms of RDS typically worsen over 48 hours with a peak of symptoms at day 3 and then an improvement gradually after day 4. Recovery is usually heralded by a diuresis. Imaging in the form of x-ray has a typical appearance. You will see atelectasis due to decreased lung volumes. You may see air bronchogams due to large airways visible on a pretty low aerated lung. You also see diffuse fine reticular granular ground glass haziness. And this again is due to the edema as well as atelectasis. Now respiratory distress in a newborn is not isolated to RDS. There's many causes. So what are the differentials for RDS? Well, the first is transient tachypnea of the newborn, which we'll talk about in a mini this week. With TTN, these infants tend to be more mature, have a milder clinical disease, and improve quickly. Moreover, a chest x-ray will show hyperinflated lungs and fluid in the fissures. Another differential is bacterial pneumonia, However, these babies tend to be more unwell in appearance, as well as the fact that these babies need antibiotic therapy in order to improve. Air leak syndromes in the way of pneumomediastinum or pneumothorax, for example, is differential for RDS. And these are actually usually a complication of RDS therapy rather than an initial presentation at birth cyanotic congenital heart disease can also present with cyanosis and tachypnea. These babies tend to have a milder respiratory component. Chest x-ray does not show the typical RDS changes that we discussed earlier. Finally, one should always keep in mind that there may be a non-pulmonary cause for respiratory distress, such as anemia, hypothermia, hypoglycemia, or metabolic acidosis. Sweet, now let's take a look at managing RDS. The options that we have are CPAP or continuous positive airway pressure, oxygen, surfactant, as well as ventilation. CPAP works by improving lung compliance and uniformity of ventilation by preventing de-recruitment of alveoli, as well as preventing collapse of small airways during exhalation in the surfactant deficient lung. And so, previously constricted blood vessels dilate when atelectasis is reversed, and this leads to an increase in pulmonary blood flow. The ventilation perfusion mismatch improves, and the intra- and extra-pulmonary shunting decreases. This, in turn, lowers the arterial CO2, it also improves oxygenation of the blood, and it decreases respiratory muscle fatigue. The specific indications for CPAP vary from place to place, but as a generalization, these include signs of respiratory distress, oxygen requirement, or for babies at risk of RDS, i.e. those born less than 30 to 32 weeks. The benefits of CPAP include improved lung compliance and ventilation, reduction in oxygen requirements, as well as reduction in the risk of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. The potential harms of CPAP include a risk of pulmonary air leak due to airway distending pressures, facial trauma, including loss of skin or nasal integrity from the CPAP interface itself, as well as abdominal distension from the air going into the alimentary canal. So for this reason, babies on CPAP will have an oro or nasogastric tube in situ and free drainage to minimize gastric detent- distension and to allow venting of the stomach. Oxygen delivery is also a feature in the management of RDS. Babies are hypoxemic due to poor ventilation as well as due to shunting. Increasing fraction of inspired oxygen allows for increased oxygenation of the alveoli as well as increased oxygen transfer into the blood. The next card we have up our sleeve for RDS and indeed the big one is surfactant. Surfactant improves the respiratory function of the baby the benefits include reduced morbidity and mortality, a reduction in severe RDS, as well as reduction in pulmonary interstitial edema, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, as well as air leak syndromes. The indications for surfactant, again, varies from unit to unit, but most commonly, an oxygen requirement of more than 30% to main saturations above 90% is an indication for surfactant use. Additionally, RDS with moderate to severe work of breathing, any baby requiring intubation for RDS, or any baby with meconium aspiration syndrome already on a ventilator usually will receive surfactant. Complications of surfactant administration include pulmonary hemorrhage, ETT tube blockage if it's administered through an ETT tube transient hypoxia and transient hypercapnia, as well as transient hypotension. The classic method of surfactant administration is through an endotracheal intubation, brief ventilation with surfactant administration, and then a prompt extubation. However, in more recent years, there are less invasive options that are now available. Less invasive surfactant administration, or LISA, works by the insertion of a thin tube through the vocal cords to insert or give surfactant without intubation or drugs. This has been shown to have better short-term outcomes in the sense of less need for mechanical ventilation and less chance for a pneumothorax, as well as some long-term benefits in the way of less intracanal hemorrhage and bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Babies with RDS also need supportive cares, and this includes thermal neutral environment to minimise heat loss and metabolic oxygen demand. They also may be held at a slightly negative fluid balance. Maintenance of blood pressure and heart rate is important, as is optimising nutrition. In terms of long-term outcomes for RDS, the main chronic complication is bronchopulmonary dysplasia, or BPD. The cause of this, or etiology, is multifactorial and is contributed to by inflammation, barotrauma from ventilation, oxygen toxicity from oxygen administration, as well as an element of infection if that was present in the baby. In terms of mortality for RDS, it sits between 1 and 10%, depending on gestational age and disease severity. You know what that means. It's time for a recap. RDS is a disease of insufficient surfactant quality as well as quantity. Less surfactant leads to increased surface tension and increased pressures need to keep small airways open. Smaller airways and alveolar collapse result in atelectasis and poor lung compliance. This ultimately leads to low functional lung volumes, hypoxia and hypercapnia. Risk factors for RDS include prematurity, maternal diabetes, male infants, elective caesarean section, second-born twin, hypoxia, and a family history of RDS. Protective factors include antenatal steroid administration, term babies, female infants, preeclampsia, prom, and subacute placental abruption. In babies born before 35 weeks, antenatal steroids can reduce the risk of RDS by up to 40%. These need to be given in two doses at least 24 hours before birth. The clinical picture of RDS is of a baby that is premature and within the first few minutes to hours of life is tachypneic and working hard to breathe. The baby may be tachycardic as well as cyanotic. The symptoms worsen over 48 hours, peak at day 3, and then gradually improve. Recovery is heralded by diuresis. Chest x-ray characteristically shows atelectasis with reduced lung volumes, diffuse, fine reticulogranular ground glass haziness, as well as air bronchograms. Differentials include transient tachypnea of the newborn, bacterial pneumonia, air leak syndromes, cyanotic heart disease, as well as non-pulmonary disorders such as hypothermia, anemia, and metabolic acidosis. And finally, the three main players in the management of RDS are CPAP, or continuous positive airway pressure, oxygen, as well as surfactant. And that's been this week's episode of A Spoonful of Medicine. Thank you so much for joining us. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. For the visual learners of us out there, head over to our Instagram page at spoonful.of.medicine for a quick summary of today's episode, along with some other great educational content. If you'd like to get in touch, have a suggestion for a future episode, or have heard something that you think needs a correction, please email us on spoonfulofmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. It's been a pleasure topping up your paediatric knowledge one spoonful at a time. I can't wait for you to join us on our next episode. But until then, bye.